Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we explore the world of neurodiversity affirming practices and what it means today by listening and learning from lived and learned experiences of the individuals we talk to. Today, I'm excited to share that we have a wonderful guest, mindful teacher, Rachel. And so who is Rachel? She is a Xenial, a first grade teacher, a local theater thespian, social and emotional learning advocate, science of reading advocate, and I'd personally argue she's a literacy and education influencer on social media. And she's most importantly, a children's book author of the World of Phonics series. Now, I first followed her because I loved how she shares tips and strategies for teachers, students, and parents. She started with social-emotional learning and then expanded to structured literacy. But I want to encourage my listeners to join me in following Rachel at Mindful Teacher Rachel on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Teachers Pay Teachers, and her Amazon Authors page. And I will put all the links in the show notes but I want you to also check out other podcasts that she's been a guest on because each of her appearances have a variety of important information and can help you better understand tough and complex topics. So I've invited her here today to discuss education, structured literacy for all students, not just students in general education, but also special education students. And I want to know how she feels about neurodiversity and education in the future. So please welcome to the show, Rachel. Yay, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You're so welcome. And like, you are honestly one of my little personal connections of Georgia teachers I love. Like immediately when like a parent reaches out to me is like, what is this structured literacy? Like first I'm like, hey, take the free Cox campus training, please. Um, or read Reading Rockets or the Sold Story podcast or our fellow friend, dear reading teacher and her reading garden club. But you are definitely like one of the teachers. And for me, like I'm a millennial, I was born in 92, but you like are so amazing to me because I felt definitely in school that my generation was told like, there's not going to be teachers. And a lot of my friends, we didn't go into the education world. And a lot of my friends now, like they're regretting that because they're having kids and they're either a substitute teacher or a paraprofessional and they're finding out they had that skill, but it wasn't nurtured. And I'm seeing that gap in the classroom because I got phonics somehow in 1998 and I don't understand the difference of not getting phonics. So it's hard for me to empathize with certain people on Facebook that'll be like, oh no, I love balanced literacy or, oh no, like look at the pictures is not harmful. And I'm just like, what? I've seen the harm. (laughs) So how do you feel, especially because did you even get any kind of training when you were in college or did you do it more on your own? Um, So I definitely started out with a shockingly positive undergrad experience in teaching when it came to literacy. And that's partially because I also studied special education alongside general education. Mm. And so some of my favorite classes were like the language and literacy classes that I took through that track Um, especially those taught by SLPs. Um, And then one of the things that I also did in college, which was amazing, was work, a work study at this place called the Reading Clinic, where we did um, reading tutoring for kids who had dyslexia, as well as other comorbid things, including a lot of speech uh, differences as well. And so um, people in school to be SLPs and then people in school to be teachers and special education teachers focusing in literacy kind of worked together in not really an after school, but in a tutoring program that was actually located at the like conjoining hospital to my university because a lot of those kids were going to the hospital or to the disability center that was on campus a lot anyways. Um, So we just worked there. And so that's where I learned things like, what is Orton-Gillingham training? What is Mm. the scope and sequence really look like? And why is that important? And how is that way more helpful than just saying, here's 
your your books in your kit, your leveled books in your kit, like start with A and go to Z, I guess. But like, there's not really any sequence of skills that you're teaching in um kind of a quantitative, meaningful way um, to align with that. And so there were so many great resources there. And that really gave me the tools to kind of speak up and out when I uh, was in my first year of teaching, I kind of didn't realize how many schools were, I guess, victim to this balanced literacy um, ideology of, okay, we're doing Wilson Phonics, but then we're doing Fountas and Pinnell Classroom mm. and writing workshop. And it's like, those things don't align together. Um, so the kids weren't using the phonics in reading because it was completely disconnected. Um, and I, I just had no idea that that would be a thing when I got to schools. And I, my first year I taught in New York, which is what I like to call Lucy land. <laughs> um, and so it was also COVID. And so that's when I started really shifting my social media to talk about structured literacy and the importance of that, because not only in COVID did we really have to focus on social emotional learning, and we still do because it was so impactful um, to children, but also I was like feeling so stuck and alone um, in teaching kids things that just didn't make sense from yeah. a literacy point and doing what I felt like was a really big disservice to my students who I could tell especially needed a strong scope and sequence of phonics instruction that actually aligned to their reading instruction and the fact that those were separate and like happening simultaneously was just so confusing to me um thankfully when I moved schools I I had a better idea of what questions to ask um, from a teaching perspective in terms of literacy. Um, and so that's something I want to empower teachers to do as well. Like when you're being hired at a school or when you're being interviewed at a school, ask them, you know, what literacy program do you use? Why do you use that? What's the research on that? Um, because I didn't the first time I, I was just happy to have a job. Yeah. Um, and I really regretted it. And it was really, really challenging because I couldn't move anything in the system to help my kids. Well, I remember that because I went to like a small little county high school and we would talk, we would make friends with our student teachers and we'd ask them, we'd be like, hey, you're really good at this. Are you coming back to our school? And they would straight up tell us like, there's no room for us. There's no money for us. We have to go to the cities that can afford us. And it wasn't always the school they wanted to teach at. It's where they knew, just like you're saying, they would get a job. And because what do they tell us? Oh, well, you need a master's and you need five years experience. And you're like, where am I going to get that? And also with student loans, what are you told? Oh, well, if you work in a city with, you know, low income families or minorities, you're more likely to get those loans forgiven. So I, it pains me that people forget all these kind of connected reasons of why, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, why do we have a teacher shortage? And they don't talk about our generation where they told us in class, well, you know, your phone has a calculator now, you know, I'm sure they're saying now, like it can read to you. It can, you can just speak and it will type for you. What do you need me for? And my answer to that is definitely, I think COVID reminded people the human component of education, because you can't talk to a computer about emotions. Like chat GPT can be nice all day long, but it'll tell you straight up. I don't have emotions, girl. <laughs> yep. For real. Well, and I mean, even I went to a very loving, amazing high school. I loved my high school experience, but I still felt because I had known that I wanted to be a teacher. I still felt kind of this weird side eye shame of like, well, why would you want to do that? You're smart. And I was yeah. like, that was my I, we have to do, we had to do a senior speech. Aren't, don't you want to girl boss your way to the top? Right? Like, come on. Yeah, or don't you want to be in STEM or whatever? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, no, I, I don't want to do that. 
And I, I felt like such an anomaly. Like I was, you know, one of the only people in my, I was the only person in my graduating class that, you know, wanted to do this and like continues to do this. Um, and it wasn't like an overt shame. Like people weren't like mean about it, I would say, but there was definitely this subtle judgment there of, well, why would you want to do that? Like, why yeah, because you- we knew straight up it was what, if it wasn't low pay, you knew it was inadequate pay and right. you saw your teacher struggle. You saw, you had to bring your backpack to school full of tissues, markers, hand sanitizer. And I remember like my back hurt, but I was like, listen, I'm doing this for my class. <laughs> yeah, real. And, you know, when you're going into a field where everyone is telling you, oh, it's terrible. Like, of course, there's a shortage. You know from a student that it's not a good work-life balance. Like, you know from being a student that being a teacher is not a good work-life balance. is really challenging. Yes. You're seeing them, you know, spend their own money on things or um, supporting- Send home fundraisers every week. Yes. <laughs> yes, supporting way too many kids in a class, um, all that kind of stuff. And so <laughs> there's really not a lot of incentive right now to- I mean, even still to be a teacher um, because people are like, it's a really hard job and there's not a lot of credit. And there's this whole layer of it being a pink collar job as well. Um, So it's definitely, you know, from the beginning of me choosing to be a teacher, um, it's, it's very interesting from like a social standpoint and like a capitalist system like American standpoint of what being a teacher is and you know your role in society versus like how you feel worthy um it's very interesting um but burnout burnout (laughs) yes um thankfully I'm in a place where I feel like I'm not going anywhere for a long time. Um, cross my fingers, knock on wood. Um, and I feel like all your, uh, SOR teachers to Georgia with you. (laughs) Yes. Yes, for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard out here for sure. Well, and I just want to say like, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing online because I know it's controversial right now. And I'm just like, I feel like I'm on the cusp of seeing this and I have to thank my dyslexic thinking, but there's a reason they removed civics and humanities when we were in school. And I know that now. And I think it's easy for people on the outside to say, oh, you know, it's indoctrination, it's politics, it's this and that. But people don't understand the education industrial complex that you, number one, have no control over. Number two, we don't even see the strings actually being pulled. And I'll tell you, my connection to New York is my parents are from New York and they were born in 1955. And what blows my mind is I have the Why Johnny Can't Read book that was published in 1955. And he went to Columbia. He was a part of the teacher's college and had all this information. It's like, why did you throw that man away and adopt all these otherworldly ideas like you had it y'all had it (laughs) but my parents they did in 1965 got taught look and say with dick and jane books and even today my mom's like conflicted she's like no i think i got phonics she did not graduate my parents did not graduate but my mom dropped out in ninth grade and passed her ged the first time which I, I joke with her. I'm like, well, mom, you know, that was the seventies. You didn't have much history, but, <laughs> but my sister, she was born in 84. And of course that's when Mari Clay came over. And I don't know if she got phonics, but I know that's also the time that hooked on phonics came out and I got hooked on phonics in 98. So the disconnect, I don't understand, but I do understand that I, I don't, I didn't like No Child Left Behind in school. I saw my friends get, and I would say even across the board with race, white friends and black friends get disenfranchised by this testing and this high stress environment. 
but I might not have gotten identified as gifted without it. And I probably wouldn't have gotten a lot of the structured literacy without it. And when I was researching the other day for a post and I saw like the last time we had 98% literacy was in 2008. And I can't help but think that that's because of that. And also it had to be like this strange juxtaposition of all these teachers from the eighties that knew phonics worked. And then they finally hit the retirement age. And of course that was the recession. So were they going to stay in a profession where they couldn't afford to be? Probably not. And obviously we understand that Lucy entered that picture at the same time. And we have, we're back to these same levels of like the 1800s, the seventies. Like, And it's like, can we never get past this? Like, are we always going to have 20% illiterate adults? Yeah. It's crazy looking at those statistics and also looking at how much illiteracy costs us as a country like as a country that seems to be so focused on money like well I I have to apologize I didn't mean to trump you because you made a post about the dollar amount but it was literally just the day before because they must have updated it from 2022 to 2023 because I think you posted like 1.8 trillion and it jumped to like 2.2 and so but I mean that makes it even more true like nobody is looking at the root of the problem they're just trying to put a band-aid on like a gushing wound that needs they want to blame covid and they want to blame (laughs) everything under the sun scientific american just put out an article today that blamed phonics and they said well phonics is the popular instruction i'm like no it's not y'all like and what you're talking about is the phonics patch yeah because my daughter's school said well, you know, we put this in place because of the, you know, the new Georgia structured literacy laws. So we'll be safe. And that's all they care about. They just want to check a box and say, Hey, we did that. And it didn't work. Can we go back to what we were doing? Like, (laughs) yeah, well, and I try to post a lot about how people say that phonics is like inconsistent or phonics doesn't work, whatever. And I'm like, that's not what we're that's not the phonics that's old news we ain't talking about the 1950s we're talking about structured literacy that was supposed to happen from 2002 on and we're talking about we're talking about the like you said the phonics patch we're talking about these like over generalized rules that are supposedly phonics instruction but actually just create more confusion for children. And so people blame quote unquote phonics, but it's actually what balanced literacy has made phonics out to be, not how actual structured literacy phonics should be run. Um, And that is like balanced literacy has given phonics a bad rap because they're like, well, we're doing phonics. And I'm like, "Mm, that's not phonics. That's not how it should be done. Yes. And also I just urge people to thrift an old book because they spell it out. They tell you straight up that reading is not easy. Kids are going to struggle and it's going to be hard for a teacher, but the rewards will be beneficial. And, you know, it's interesting because it's funny because I see so many retired teachers on Facebook defending balanced literacy and they left the classroom and I I reach out to them I'm like have you followed up with these students you claim learn how to read because I think they're more likely to be a part of that 20% of illiterate adults that look like they could read for your classroom Mm -hmm. but do they have the job they wanted did they get the degree they wanted do they have you know what I mean like I think the problem is that disconnect of well I did my job they passed the test, you know, I got promoted for my grade. So what are you trying to, why are you attacking me? (laughs) Well, and if they're using a curriculum that we know is ineffective and the kid did well with that curriculum, I said that in air quotes. So that (laughs) list, um, that doesn't actually prove that that kid has learned to read because we know that when kids are guessing from the picture, if they're doing well with leveled readers that are written in a way where you can three cue your way out of it essentially yes for, for all the foundational skills 
then you look like you can be able to read. And so then you progress to the next grade. But that's not because you actually know how to read. It's because you're following the curriculum, you're following that, you know, misinformed curriculum to a point where you are successful, I guess, with that curriculum, but we know that curriculum is not good. So it's it's the the measurement of these kids' success is totally skewed. Um, and it's also not longitudinal. We are, you're only seeing your your kids for one grade, maybe two if you loop. Um, and so that's really, really problematic for sure. And it's hard as, you know, like you said, I'm young. It's hard as a young teacher who, you know, I don't I don't claim to be an expert, but I am very well versed in structured literacy and how to implement it with students. Um, you know, I get a lot of weird backlash from older teachers who are really married to Fountas and Pinnell and Lucy Calkins and the fundamentals of balanced literacy. Um, and it's often like, well, you've been teaching for two minutes. How do you mm. know? You know, why would you ageism? Ageism. <laughs> and you know, that's another reason why I feel like early career teachers, you know, are leaving the field because not only is it hard out there, they have way too big classes. They don't have support from teachers or from admin. They're also like just not respected by their peers in the field. Um, and why and would you stay in a public school system when care.com has a mom looking for a nanny and a literacy teacher and she's paying exactly. buku money <laughs> yeah exactly um you just you just don't want to be treated like someone who doesn't know anything and of course there's so much stuff that we can learn from teachers who have been in the field for a long time but there's also things you can learn from teachers who have that new energy, who have the most up-to-date research, who are able to use technology in a way that, you know, you didn't have to back in school. Um, and I, I don't think that's appreciated enough as well. So, you know, when I started sharing stuff on social media, that was another piece of my mission of like, hey, new teachers, young teachers, like you have a voice here. Mm. It is really valuable. You are not alone. Um, and even if you feel like the teachers who are supposed to be mentors to you are not respectful to you, you deserve that. And like you can get the support that you need and be really good at your job as a young teacher. You don't have to feel like you are inadequate just because you're young. Um, and I think that that's really important because we have so many teachers leaving the field in the first five years. Um, and I think some of that uh, aligns to how we treat teachers social emotionally. Like they need to yes. be. Yes. And your university doesn't stop at the student. It goes to yeah. the teacher. It goes to the admin. It goes to the parents. And mm -hmm. for me, I think it's so important because when I was in trying to advocate for my daughter in public school, the school, and it's funny because it's like in the first chapter of the Rudolph Flesh book is what does teachers college say? Oh, if you're having a problem in the classroom, blame the parent and start that divide. Um, and so I noticed that I felt like I had a good rapport with my daughter's teacher because she was graduated literally the year my daughter was born. Um, but as soon as she didn't have the experience was asking admin for help. Admin started kind of programming her to practice like behaviorism, PBIS. Um, and I noticed the shift because it was no longer a relationship or rapport. It was, she was defensive and she mm -hmm. was trying to defend herself. Even if I wasn't being on the offense, I was just asking questions but there was a certain point where she felt like she couldn't answer the question or she felt like she would get fired if she answered honestly. And what did we discuss before? Like if you are a young teacher and you don't have any funds and you're maybe living on your own for the first time, do you have a leg to stand on to stand up to admin? No. <laughs> nope. And so then often you feel like even though 
you want to build that homeschool connection and you mm. want the student and everything you're doing is for the benefit of the student and the family. Like you can't even, you don't even have the power to make that choice of like, mm, actually this is what we need to do to support this family or support the student because you don't have that power there, um, which is so like disheartening um, because you like know deep down what's right and you can't even do it. Yeah. And I'd even argue, cause I made a post recently about emotional labor. I think we're discounting the fact that parents have the emotional labor of advocating for their child, but teachers are also having emotional labor because they might want to advocate for that child, but they don't have the power to do so, or they don't know how to ask, or they might not have the resources. And right. I'm sure the admin has an emotional labor to that too, because they want to get paid. They want to keep their job. And are they going to risk their job for one teacher and one parent? No. And so like, as a teacher, you're definitely stuck between a rock and a hard place because admin won't budge. And of course you want to support the kid and the parent, but then you're, you're feeling like, because your point of like the parents point of contact is you Mm. they're probably quote unquote taking out what admin deserves on On you yes who doesn't really want to make that hard decision for the child which is very very difficult it's like nobody's on your team um and really everybody should be on the team of the The child child. (laughs) yes you're like there's literally a kid here come on people like yes I completely agree and wish I had a teacher like you in an IEP meeting when we were in them last year so my question to you because you mentioned looping and I'm so interested and I see my favorite structured literacy teachers talking about it and I, I know I've been shouting it in the void but how do you feel about inclusive education, knowing what you know about structured literacy? You know, I feel like as a teacher who knows about structured literacy, I am so much more well equipped to support children who receive a range of services. Mm. Um, and I'm so much more well-versed in being able to talk to different providers of services and really work together as a team to support the kid, right? Mm. So at my first school, I worked in what was called a CIT classroom, which is like an inclusion classroom. So any child in the grade who had time in the gen ed classroom but was also in a special ed setting would be in my class because I had that experience as um getting special ed classes in college right so is question is that kind of like how some schools will have like a general education teacher get like the gifted endorsement yes it's exactly like that and so you um I was in a co-teacher setting up there and one of the teachers in in the class had to have some sort of certification in special ed to be able to have be you know a leader in the CIT classroom however I felt like because my school wasn't aligned with structured literacy whenever I was talking to his language arts pullout teacher or Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about a specific student but like any of the students language arts pullout teachers or OTs or SLPs like we I knew what he was doing or I knew what I had a child who had all of those services but any child in that class who had any of those services I knew what they were doing in those classes but I couldn't give them any good information about what how they were doing in my class yeah. because it didn't really align with what they were doing and I, we just couldn't really work together as a team because of kind of the bureaucracy of admin and the the rigidity of the curriculum that we had to use to support the student. Yes. Now that I'm at a place where it's all structured literacy and they literally are like, yes, we trust you. Do what you need to do. We've invented our own spelling curriculum that's Orton Gillingham inspired. All of our content is aligned with our writing. So we're really honing in on that 
background knowledge and vocabulary and aligning it with the way that we teach writing and grammar. Um, it's like a dream situation for me. And we're constantly getting to like improve and, um, you know, push kids even more, like challenge kids even more and support kids even more, um, which I love. I'm actually able to have meaningful and productive conversations with kids pull out Orton Gillingham tutors and kids mm. pull out SLPs and OTs and all of that because what they're doing in those pullouts aligns with what we're doing in the classroom. Um, and before, I mean, of, of all of the children, children with different neurodiversity aspects need that kind of team of we're all coming together and we're all working together and everything's aligned the most. Yeah. And uh, in previous schools, that alignment was just missing. And so not only was that doing a disservice to gen ed students, that was doing like an extra level of disservice to kids who really needed all those services to come together. Um, and they just weren't. Because um, can you imagine going to a pullout language arts session that is, that is structured literacy, it's primarily phonics, and then getting back to a classroom and you're having to do a writer's workshop lesson? What? My daughter, she was put up through that. So how it started was... And I don't, I like, I think her original pre-K teacher did have some kind of structured literacy training um, because I know like GMC in Georgia is like huge, kind of like, I think like idea, no, I think IDA of Georgia kind of like even said like they're, they're a good school for if you want, or if you're interested in structured literacy to go there. Mm -hmm. So I think she had some understanding because she would do the Jack Hartman videos and she would do like the subtitles videos. And yeah. what is that Ex explicit instruction? You know, lovely Dr. Anita Archer. Um, so like my daughter and, but the problem at home was I had no clue, but her tablet and a lot of these private applications like Khan Academy Kids, Nessie Learning, they have structured literacy. So my daughter already had the building blocks because we were watching Alpha Blocks at home, Number yep. Blocks at home. Right. And these were recommendations from other toddlers on the playground. They would literally tell my daughter, like, you would like this show, go put it on YouTube and watch it. And yeah. so she had a good foundation. So what really hit us was they had reading eggs. And mm -hmm. when we had a school meeting, the my ultimate thing I think the issue was is it was a situation which goes back to the phonics patch is all, all these people in the school were considered like independent contractors almost but mm -hmm. they didn't communicate to each other so the example with the phonics patch so she would get 10 minutes of Hegarty in the morning 10 minutes of Sunday after that and that was supposed to be her phonics patch then she would have like you know the rest like specials all that then at the end of the day when her dyslexic brain was tired, they expected her to pay attention to like a 60 plus minute guided reading session with leveled readers. And they did not understand the connection of why she was not paying attention. So what was their complaint? Oh, well, she's behavior issues, even though she never got a referral. And she was also advanced in pre-K. So her teacher would let her sleep. Mm. And, you know, as a mom, I'm like, okay, I don't care. Like, that's fine. But it got to the problem in kindergarten because she knew everything on the curriculum and they wanted her to repeat. Like she already knew how to spell her name, but they wanted her to do those activities of, oh, put your name in order and all these things that she was just bored. She was not challenged. And so she wanted to sleep. So I would get email and email after email from her teacher being like, well, she's not paying attention. She needs one-on-one -on -one support. So eventually that was their goal was a pullout with just a special education. Um, I don't even know. I think she was in training. I don't think she was like a full on, she wasn't a paraprofessional. She was a little bit more than that. She might've had an associates, but she wasn't like a full teacher. Yeah. And yeah. once I brought in dyslexia, they had this independent contractor that was Linda Mood Bell certified. And okay. I don't know the connection between balanced literacy and Linda Mood Bell, but something about it, they go hand in hand. 
because there's a lot of people online complaining now that their Linda Mood Bell training did not properly prepare them. And it's almost like a built-in wait to fail system because, you know, they do the multi-sensory and my daughter did not care. She did not want to do the hand movements. She did not want to do the dances. She really just wanted to learn to read so she could read what she wanted. And that wasn't going to be a leveled book. She wanted to read real books <laughs> and mm-hmm. they didn't understand that. And now we know it's because she's not neurotypical. She's neurodivergent. She wants to, and I preference this by saying, at home, I'm very child-led, but we don't practice the whole inquiry-based learning or interest-based learning. I still do explicit instruction, but because we built in with structured literacy that gradual release of responsibility, she has the autonomy to choose a book she wants to read or a, ta- a game or an application on her tablet. And she feels confident to do that. And so she's learning on her own. My son, I hate, I don't want to brag, but he has taught himself all 13 planets of our solar system, which means the eight planets and the dwarf planets from Hopscotch songs and other YouTube videos. And we've gotten books. So now he's associating and he's sounding out the words. And because I know that's his interest, I've made worksheets where like you will practice spelling the planet names and sounding out the planet names. And I know that's not possible in a public school setting. So for me, it feels hard because like it feels very privileged. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that's not a reality, but I feel like what we know from neuroscience and what we know from structured literacy and what we know from explicit instruction shouldn't be hard to implement implement in a classroom and I want to ask you a question because I've gotten some backlash because I personally believe what I'm sure a lot of people that love structured literature believe is that we need a high quality tier one general education classroom but that's not saying we don't need speech therapists or occupational therapists or physical therapists yes you're going to still need interventions but it's not the first line of defense you need a high quality curriculum, a high quality training program, then you need identification. Like early identification is important, but early intervention, if we had a good high quality program, we wouldn't need so many interventions. Yes. Right now we're using special education and all of those interventions as the safety net when really Mm -hmm. the safety net should be tier one, right? Like we should be able to catch the most children in tier one and that's why you know there's so much like there's so many kids that are in like tier two or whatever that like should have been well served by tier one yes have all these kids or all these schools with an inverted triangle of all these kids who need special education services and tier three support and tier two support and then you have this like tiny section of tier one and it's like okay well no, you don't have a really special school with lots of kids who just need tons of support. Like, of course, every kid needs some different supports. And there are a bunch of kids in this, the top heavy part of the triangle that do need those supports, right? Yeah. But if you're overburdening those systems that should be serving 5% of the population and 15% of the population with 80% of the population, you're not best serving the kids who need special education services like anyways and so what that tells me when a school has a or when you know a teacher says like oh my gosh like so many of my kids are you know have have reading disabilities or whatever like some of them definitely do like yes but what that tells me is that tier one is not doing its job because Mm. that just shouldn't be the case that's just like statistically not possible that like every well, can we talk about that because I follow some great tutors and their job they're calling themselves math therapists because people don't realize how much math anxiety is going on and for me I'd argue it's undiagnosed dyscalculia but also I think we we need to track math literacy and financial literacy as well because a lot of these people in admin I don't, I wouldn't argue that they're all fraudulent. You know what I mean? Like, I don't believe that everybody's trying to, you know, pocket this special education funding money, 
But I do think that a lot of people might not know how to manage the money properly. And it's complicated because what do you have? You have the board of education. They want something. You have parents, PTOs, they want something. And then a lot of teachers with, if they still have a pension or, you know, those teachers that talk to you and they're like, Hey, I've been here. How long you got seniority. And so it's hard to manage people when you have so many, you know, different threads pulling at you. Yes, for sure. And, you know, uh, I have been talking about this a lot recently, but when you have the purchasing powers, so when you're school board or, you know, principal, whatever, like I don't, it it depends on the school. Buy Rachel's books and you'll be okay. (laughs) Who has the purchasing power, right? Like, um, the, the, the curriculum companies are not marketing to teachers. They're not marketing mm. this. They are trying to do what is pretty and satisfying and the most bang for your buck for the people who have the purchasing power. And so then you think, oh, this is shiny. They've advertised this so well to me. There's no like FDA of curriculum, right? Really? Um, well, can we talk about how the hypocrisy of those same teachers that said, oh, this is a brand new teacher. She's got all this new training. She doesn't know what she's doing. You are the shiny object, but they don't want to invest in you. They want to invest in these books that are just a new rendition of the same thing. Right. Right. And so then purchasing power people are buying curriculum like Lucy, like, you know, Teachers College Reading Writing Project, like Founders of Manel Classroom, because it is shiny, it is popular, it is what other schools have had for a long time. Mm. Um, It's all packaged up so nice, it has so many books, blah, 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 blah. Um, And then it gets, trickles down to the teachers and the kids, and they're like, what is this? Why did you buy this? this is wackadoodle and then the same people who purchased it are like well the reason that you're not getting results is because you're not doing it with fidelity yeah no no because even with fidelity it's not working it's still not working (laughs) like it there there's no research out there that shows doing Foundus and Pinnell classroom and doing teachers college reading and writing project curriculums with fidelity makes any difference for kids who haven't been served by it if it's not like to fidelity right you know it's interesting the research does prove that's exactly what behaviorism does it uses overcompensation and it cherry picks research to make it look pretty it looks like it works and it's interesting because i'm starting to see through that because there was a recent um I'll have to put them in the show notes but they just made a recent post talking about um the new Lucy decodables have been leaked and a lot of the rubrics contain behavior and in the education world it's kind of a red flag when you see behavior because what does it mean usually you don't know how to teach reading if you're looking at oh why is the student not sitting still why are they not paying attention And for me and my dyslexic brain, all I see is a direct line between constructivism, behaviorism, whole language. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, and if we're policing children's reading, quote unquote, behaviors. You can't just love it anymore. You got to look like you love it. (laughs) Never. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You're never going to have children who do read for pleasure, which is what Lucy and Gesu, um, like, is what they want, uh, want, you know, they want all these kids to read for pleasure, but it's like, well, if they're not sitting up straight or feet on the floor, like it's very. But do, have you ever seen a leveled reader win a Pulitzer prize? No, <laughs> I've not, but I, and I think I said this on another podcast, like people decodables get such a bad rap because they're like, oh, well, they're not real books. I'm like, have you read a leveled reader? They are awful. Yes. At least in decodables, the picture doesn't have to perfectly match the text. So there's a little more 
whimsy there. Yeah. The kids unpack extra stuff that's happening in the picture that's totally not linked to the text and is like funny. Like I have a whole section of our phonics scope and sequence that talks about like homophones like especially when you get to long vowel spellings like there's so many words that are homophones right mm. a bunch of the decodables that are aligned with that have homophones in it so they're yeah. like full of puns and the kids are like this is so clever like this is so funny and then they can explain like why it's funny um it's a play on words it's a homophone they sound the same but they mean different things and to me that is so much more meaningful as someone reading a book or as a child choosing a book to read than Sam likes to swing Sam likes to play Sam is on the slide like what those are and I want to talk about that because when you talked on uh the reading uh lounge podcast like mm-hmm. I I want everybody to listen to that one because you listen to your students and they're not asking you to make level decodable readers they want engaging material so yeah. tell me about your idea for world of phonics so I started out just with the idea for a book about schwa um because we actually introduce it pretty early in our scope and sequence like we'll introduce it in end of october Mm. so that kids can access and i teach first grade so that kids can access multi-syllabic words because there's so many like just two syllable words that have schwa especially as that second kind of lazier syllable um and the first year i taught with the scope and sequence some of the kids were getting it, like as as would be expected, ladder of reading. Um, but a lot of kids were not getting, like when we were talking about that sound, they were like, well, it just sounds like short U or short I mm. to me. I don't understand. They, they were not. Your parents will say the same thing. <laughs> um, They didn't understand why we were teaching it as a separate concept. It wasn't like doing them any services when they were trying to um sound and I'll tell you it was probably your neurodivergent kids that were like "Mm -mm, that logic mm -mm." yeah it doesn't make any sense so I was like well why don't I just make a little character and like talk about how it can spell all the different vowel sounds and then show how all the different vowel letters are spelling that sound in different words and give them examples Mm. um especially because when I had first learned about schwa, it was just talked about as the sound, uh, like it was just the lazy U sound. But then when I learned, or the short U sound, but then when I learned kind of about where the vowel sounds placement were in our mouths, I understood more, especially with our kids' like accent or um, like the dialect, especially like Southern, um, it can sound I too, like that's a pretty neutral sound as well. And so I wanted to make sure that I was talking about that as well, not just schwa as short you. Like, for example, the word carrot, my kids say it carrot with like Mm. an it sound. And so when I had told them, oh, that's schwa, when I had first taught schwa, they were like, but I don't say it carrot. That sounds weird. Let me throw one out for you because this is Georgia. Like when I moved, I moved from like middle Georgia, like military town to just like a tiny bit higher. They didn't say daddy. They said Diddy. And I was like, yeah, what? What? What?" (laughs) I was like, what do you say? Diddy? Like, Diddy? Um, Yeah, no. And so that was something that like I'd show them words that had schwa. And they were like, but that doesn't sound like short you. And I was like, you were absolutely right. Like that's on me. Um, so I, you know, had always had the idea that I wanted to be a children's author. I just didn't really have a topic that I wanted to write about really, or a strong idea. So I wrote the text first. I drew the little character. Um, and then I was like, wait, I could actually like turn this into a real book. Like other people could read that. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, and so, I, you know, figured out how I could do that. Um, and I did. Um, and so then I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there was a book about this concept? Um, mm. and so that's how I came up with the the why and sometimes why book, because that was a tricky concept for my kids. So it really just came from the idea of 
as I was teaching these different trickier phonics and spelling rules or just more abstract, honestly, to my students, they needed something really engaging and concrete that they could remember um, and use when they were reading. And so um, it, it just stemmed from what I felt like my students needed as an like an add-on or like a pre-teaching when we were teaching different concepts in our scope and sequence. Um, and then I just kind of went from there with the ideas and there have been so many now, like I, I still have like a whole running list of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a book about this or a book about this, like yes. short vowel protectors this past week. And now my kids are obsessed with it. They like literally fight over that book so that, um, like we have two copies so that way they can at least have a little more to share um because they're fi- they find the short vowel protectors everywhere when they read now and they like have language about it they have the little character that they can picture um you know they they understand where it should be right next to a short vowel they understand why that they're there um and so they ask really great questions too about it um and it just makes like One time I asked one of my professors, I was like, well, what do I do if the phonics lesson is boring? This was like, oh, it was such a stupid question. And the- No question stupid. Were you told that? (laughs) My professor said, if the phonics lesson is boring, you're boring. Or it's because you're boring. I was like, fair enough. Like, I- Well, I was going to say, you know, the the- People don't realize that when your teacher shares something with you, like I do remember the teachers that I had that were authors and it, it made it just like you're saying, it made an abstract concept concrete. And I love mentorship and role models for that reason, because unless you see it, you don't know if you can be it. And I would say that goes beyond dyslexia. Like sure. Like, yeah, my visual and spatial works better just for that. But multi-sensory too. I mean, like if you hear that, if you feel that, it somehow implants into your mind a lot better. And I love that more because I used to be a personal trainer. So I see more like go noodle and a lot of people saying like, yeah, get those kids moving and not in a way that's like, oh, compliance. Well, you have to move right now. No, you want to get them interested like make up your own movement or you know what I mean yeah no and I you know I didn't think it would happen so fast that I could like get to be an author and I I didn't think that like I have several books like yeah because if you overthink it it won't happen no no I I just kind of did it and I just went for it on a small scale like I I only really wanted it for my kids like I kind of just wanted it to be like a PDF that I could like scroll through so that they could see it on the screen. And then I'd like print little pictures of the character and put it on the sound wall. Like that's, that's how the idea started. And then it turned into this whole thing. And now it's like, people know my book and people are sending me pictures of them reading my book with their kids. And like, it's just honestly a dream come true. And it makes me feel like I can like you said, be a better role model for my students of like, yes, like if you can dream it, you could be it. And you just have to do the steps that you like the small steps that you can take to take a small dream, like larger scale. Um, And that like anyone, anyone out there can have a dream and act on it. Um, And I think, I mean, when I tell my students, you know, this is my book and they're like, what yeah at first they're like you're like this is from my mind printed out like yeah they're like wow you know sometimes I'll I'll show them like the original drawings or the original sketches on my iPad because I do it all digitally and they're like this is how it looked at the beginning yeah cool um it I do we do you do (laughs) this is an easter egg but the cityscape in my new book v is for volcano j is for jelly the cityscape is the atlanta like is iconic buildings from the atlanta skyline oh um so that's pretty cool uh there's like one building that has like did you put the varsity in there for v (laughs) varsity is not in it but it could be um and the fire station that's like my local fire station where I grew up is the fire station that's like there so um cool. 
And so my kids are like, I've seen that building before. And I'm like, yeah, I drew it after that building. Well, and can we talk about these publishing companies? Because I've literally thrifted old phonics books and old phonics games books. And on the back of them, they say, hey, if you're a teacher and you have a great idea, write to us, send it in. We will, you know, use that information, make a book and you'll get credit. And like, that was teacher pay teachers before the internet. And I'm like, how did we get so far removed from that human component? Because chat GPT ain't gonna have this creativity. (laughs) I like, um, I like, you know, have reached out to a lot of like the bigger publishing companies, especially those that like have published recent like um science of reading related content Mm. they don't know like they're not they don't care that you're a teacher and it's like come on man like help a teacher or my thing is like you know how in college we hear so much of how much work you have to do in class why aren't colleges monetizing that work like I want to read thesis papers come on (laughs) you can fun students while they're in school I mean you get athletes finally that you know get paid for some of their likeness and their work why can't academic students get the same opportunity yeah yeah for sure um but yeah it's it's very odd out there as a teacher as a teacher creator as a teacher author um like even with teachers pay teachers it's it's such a weird it pains me that they I don't know if they fully partnered with Lucy but when she tagged them in her newest endeavor it I removed all the stuff that I had because I was just making worksheets that I make for my two little children at home and was like maybe this will help somebody I went to a different website and or I'll offer it for free on Facebook because I don't want to contribute to a company that's going to support her just because she's got an LLC now. You know what I mean? And like, if we can support real teachers and, you know, people that have done the science, done the professional development and are willing to change and learn and help families and parents And that's why I tell people like Cox Campus, it's not just for one group. It's from birth to third. And and that's just arbitrary. Like I try to tell people like, no, there's resources. Like you don't stop. Your brain doesn't stop the ability to learn to read after third grade. You can read anytime. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, I love Cox Campus. It's so good. So good. Every time I get an email, because like I'm on the newsletter, of course, I'm like, oh, yay. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's another like part of my platform too, is like, how can I share? There's so many resources out there, including free resources, like so many free resources out there for teachers, for parents, um, to not only learn about the science of reading research, but like how to actually implement structured literacy in your classroom, whether it's like you know, ideas or games or actual like resources with like worksheets and lessons, like, you know, all that stuff. Um, and just, well, and can I just point out, yeah, because if you ever get pushed back and like, people are like, well, you know, all these people are going to homeschool for certain reasons. I want to tell you point blank. No, if like you were in my school, my kids would be in public school. And the truth is I'm only learning about structured literacy I tell people against my will, but it's because I have to, because I can't afford a private tutor. I can't afford certain things. I can't afford private school for my kids. And I share all the free training in like every homeschool group that I'm in. I share your resources, like, because sadly the publishing companies don't stop at public school or private school. They are going for homeschool families too. They're moving away. If the public school won't buy their material, they're telling homeschoolers, well, you know, everybody learns differently. No, we, nobody's born with the skill to read. You all need to learn (laughs) their structured literacy and it's not one size fits all. And it's not boring. No, it's not boring. And like, that's, I bring, that's how I kind of like bring my theater background to teaching too. Like, yes. Reading theater with Skyfall. Oh, my daughter loved it. Loved. My kids, like can't I this is like or starfall sorry I'm <laughs> starfall yeah 
but some of my this is like a humble brag, but like my students cannot take their eyes off of me because yeah. I am the main thing in the room. Um, I, so like the way, even the way I structure my read alouds, I do like didactic read alouds. And one of the things I do is I walk around the room while I'm reading. Mm. So they're, they're, they're like, it's allowing them to have that movement because they have to like turn their bodies yeah. to like be able to see. And then everyone, you know, even if you're sitting in the back of the room, you have a, a time where the book is closest to you. Um, and that way, like I'm on my feet the whole time. So like I'm acting out the characters, we're doing voices, we're doing all that stuff. And then I'm like asking questions. There's a lot of student participation. If it's a rhyming book, like I won't say the rhyme that like they will say it back. Yeah. Hear it. Like, so it is, I mean, it's an experience for them. They'll be like, can you do the walk around um, when what we... I'd argue, like a lot of these readers, I thrift and I know people get mad at me, but they didn't have specialists back in the day. Like that was not a thing, but what did they have? Like, if you grew up in a family, you didn't have a TV or a radio. You were doing exactly that. You were providing the entertainment. You were storytelling, you were, you know, performing. And that was never separated from early education. Yep. Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that is a huge part of like myth busting is like structured literacy is not boring. It is so interesting. And because I'd say the reading wars are boring (laughs) because of, you know, my knowledge of how the brain learns to read and because of, you know, I, I spend less planning because I know my reading scope and sequence. I, I, there's no question of what I'm going Mm. to do next based on student data. And so because of that, I can implement all these fun extra pieces. Well, and I want to point that out. When you say data, let's tell the people, do you mean a computer or do you mean a teacher assessment? Uh, teacher assessment. Yeah. See, and that's for me, I felt like such an imposter because I had that data but did they take it seriously coming from a parent probably not but do they know the science behind iReady and mapping that just encourages you to keep a child at a certain rate so they get paid for that program no (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's there's so many layers out there as to why our literacy is so high and why we're essentially keeping it that way for choosing yes choosing to keep it that way to keep it that way um and it 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 powers me every day I I showed my partner this video and it was like um if you saw me arguing with someone on the street what do you think it would be about and I asked my partner you know if I were Swift Taylor Swift it was not Taylor Swift. It was literacy <laughs> and science of reading. But uh, Taylor Swift would be a close set. Taylor Swift would be a close second. But Taylor Swift tickets. There you- <laughs> um, it was science of reading and structured literacy and like how the brain learns to read. And I was like, good for you. Like, thank you for knowing that. You know so much about me. That's going to be so- your wedding vows. Listen, our kids yeah. are getting structured literacy and... <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's funny because I have a friend who unknowingly went to school to be a speech therapist and is now a tutor in Florida. Mm -hmm. And she made a post on Facebook that said, hey, if you are dyslexic, get you an SLP partner (laughs) or teacher because it'll save you money. And it's it's funny, but it's not funny at the same time. It's so true. It's funny, but like, it's so true. It also hurts. Yes. And it's sad because I didn't know the hereditary component of neurodiversity or dyslexia or giftedness until I took the free Nessie training literally a year ago because of October was dyslexia awareness month. Mm-hmm. And I took the made by dyslexia screener and found out, oh yeah, I'm an adult with dyslexia, but because I got phonics, I didn't have a reading issue. And I didn't need early intervention. And 
Uh, yeah, sure. I probably do have dysgraphia. Do I have the prettiest handwriting? No, but can I write a letter? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. I, it's been a long time coming. Cause like I blow your DMS up. <laughs> I love them. I love them. Whenever you message me, I'm like, okay, good. Like something good. Um, and also it's like relaxing to me because we, we speak the same language, you know what yes. I mean? Like we're on the same page. Um, and I just love talking to people who are like-minded and like ready to unpack all of this stuff. Mm. Um, and we see the connection. Like, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be like, oh, you're having a bad day because you didn't read the picture on the page. <laughs> And I can send you an article and I know you know what to read because of your training. Yes. (laughs) There's less miscommunication. There's less like, and I wouldn't even say like there's less misinformation. No, there's still going to be misinformation, but I do credit my dyslexia thinking a lot. But if I only had to rely on that and I didn't have phonics and I didn't have reading skills, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. For sure. And, and it's just, it's a skill that I don't even think about having. Right. But I yes. couldn't live without it. It's a human right. <laughs> yes. For absolutely sure. Um, and I just hope that people listening to this are, you know, willing to have a conversation, talk to you. How, do your neighbors remember learning how to read? Like, yes. What is, what is their opinion about it? talk to your parents. Do they remember learning how to read? Cause it's just a conversation that I think so many people have a lot of misinformation about, or don't even really think about on a daily basis, but it's clearly impacting so many people in our, in the United States, especially students. Um, and I'm just glad to be a part of the conversation, you know? Yes, we absolutely do know how important it is. And I just want to thank you and all of our listeners for joining us on this episode. I really hope that our listeners found this discussion on neurodiversity, education, and structured literacy informative and inspiring. We want to remember that every single human is unique. And the strategies that you've heard here today Yeah, they're going to work best for maybe one human, and it might differ from one to another, but it's important to be willing to adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about the needs and strengths of all humans. Being a neuroaffirming individual is an ongoing journey of learning, empathy, and growth. So if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like subscribe, share, leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. I encourage you to follow Rachel at Mindful Teacher Rachel. But until next time, please just keep nurturing those neuroaffirming connections. Until then, this is the Neuroaffirming Parent signing off.